The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now for the Culture Club today, a voice you'll be so well used to from over the years on The Last Word and also across Today FM. Angela Flannery, newsreader, used to talk to us about restaurants, used to do the week trending. What else used you do for us, Angela? Well, you skipped and went to North Korea once and I got a phone call in the middle of the night going, Matt's in North Korea, that I thought was a joke. Can you come in and cover the last word? So I had to come in and do that, which was pretty terrifying. Then the next question was, is he ever coming back? <laughs> you were so, hoping I wouldn't come back. Oh, jeez, no, no, no. I was desperate for you to come back as quickly as possible, please. OK, I'd forgotten about that. But yes, I do remember you mm. actually have presented the programme as well. So it's great to have you back for the Culture Club. Back because you have published your first piece of fiction, The Amusements. Congratulations on that. Tell us about it. So yeah, The Amusements is my debut novel. It's set in Tremor in County Waterford and it's the story of two teenage friends, Helen and Stella, and uh, the people that they grow up around. Um, you know, it wasn't my first novel. I was writing another novel about four years ago and I got stuck on it. And I had read this short story by William Trevor called Honeymoon in Tremor. Now, people, William Trevor, people know from the Ballroom of Romance. That was one of his stories that was adapted to the TV series of Brenda Fricker, all of that. So it, one of my favourite, favourite writers. And so this Honeymoon in Tremor story, I'd never read it and that was set in Tremor before. Now, I'm originally from Waterford. We moved when I was eight, but Tremor was where we went on holidays. And when my dad died, my mother moved back down to Waterford and down to Tremor. So she lives there. So I'm really familiar with Tremor. So when I read this short story, I was like, do you know what? Why has no one ever written a story about this town? Because it's just so unique and has so much potential. I'm going to write a story. So I wrote a couple of stories and one of them won the Harper's Bazaar short story competition was published in Harper's Bazaar. And that was about this little girl, Helen Grant, who's brought by her granny into Waterford to visit her father who's drying out in a mental hospital. So I start. I wrote that story while I was stuck on this other novel, but I couldn't go back into the novel. I was like, Helen Grant, Helen Grant, what happens to her? Who are her friends? Does she get out of Tremor? You know, is she happy in her life? And I started writing the answers to those questions. And all of these characters just kind of came out of the landscape of Tremor at me. And before I knew it, I was writing their stories. And you find out what happens with Helen and her friend Stella through the stories of the community that live in Tremor. Do these characters start taking over your life as you're imagining them from the page? Do they become almost real for you? And she's, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, you know, I thought I've gone mad. I'm lying in bed, you know, worrying about people who don't exist. <laughs> You know, what kind of anxiety is this? But that's a lot, you know, that's the right, uh, the life of a writer, I suppose, you know. They do become very, very real. And one of the lovely things publishing the amusements is now my friends and family, now that they're reading it, you know, will be texting me going, geez, that's Nancy Swain. She's some rip, you know, or is Helen ever going to get out of Tremor or is Marcus Mackey ever going to get what's coming to him? You know, like, great. These people start, have started believing in the character, so I'm not on my own with them anymore. And are these characters going to populate future novels? I don't know. I actually don't know, Matt. Like, they're, they're still in my head. They're kind of rattling around in the back of my head and, you know, they're muttering away. And sometimes I kind of catch a bit of what they say and I go, that could be a story, that could be a novel. So I wouldn't rule it out, you know, and it's, it, that's the kind of writing that I like. I don't like letting go of characters once they're in your head. And given that you, for many years here in our newsroom at Today FM, used to rattle out the stories for reading mm. at the top of the hour, do you rattle out the fiction as quickly? No. 
I really don't. And you know, um, that was the great thing. I, I, I absolutely loved working in the newsroom in Today FM, but it was a very clean experience. You left the job at home or you left, you didn't bring the job home, you left it in work. But at the same time, I was writing at that time as well, you know, as a freelancer in the papers. I used to do the restaurant columns and I had a couple of, you know, first person columns. They took me forever to write. And the beauty of writing a news bulletin was just, you know, it was so clean and you just get it out and it was the top of the air, it would change all the time. And I loved that, that discipline. But it was a very good discipline in getting rid of adjectives and kind of, you know, the purple prose when it came to writing, writing for news because you just strip everything away. So it did really help me. But I'm a very, very slow writer. Yeah. We'll get to your writing influences a little bit later, but we always start Culture Club with music. And I love your choice as Mm. the first single that you say you bought. Yeah, it was Blondie, Heart of Glass, which makes me sound like I was really, really cool, but I, I wasn't. What happened was, you know, Top of the Pops had just started in 1979 in Ireland because it was on um, RTE2. And we only had, so I was living in South Kilkenny at the time in Pilltown. Um, and I was living in the same state as, um, oh, I'm forgetting your name, Pamela. No, not Pamela. Who works here? Pamela Joyce? No, not no, Pamela Joyce. Pamela Paula, 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 Sweeney. Paula McSweeney. She was a baby. She was one of the babies, like, you know, three doors down. We lived in the one estate in Piltown in County Kilkenny and she was the baby and yeah. I was 10, you know. So anyway, that's an, an aside. But um, so, yeah, we were living in Piltown and there was no, um, you know, 1979 it was RTE1 and that was it. Top of the Pops came along then and I saw Blondie on Top of the Pops and just thought, God, she's the most beautiful. Debbie Harry is the most beautiful, beautiful woman I've ever seen. And she was, you know, so um, my dad's from England or was from England and we were in England um, shortly after that on holidays and we went into Lee Market in Lancashire near where my father was from and they had a record shop there because there was no record shops in Piltown County, Kilkenny, you know. And I went to, I was like, oh, you got that blondie, that blondie record and I bought it just because I thought she was so beautiful. But then I played it and played it and played it. And I think that, you know, it really influenced my taste in music as I got older because I just played it on the grooves nearly wore off it. I'd won single. Let's hear Heart of Glass. Heart of Glass. You also gave us the second single that you bought. Yeah, Kim Wilde, Kids in America. At that stage, we'd moved to Clondalkin, right? And for my 11th birthday, I was given a voucher for Tuttles in Clondalkin and they used to sell records at the back of it. So I went in looking for, you know, another beautiful blonde, Kids in America, Kim Wilde, which was, yeah, yeah, there's a pattern there, all right. Okay, your favourite album is also from the 1980s, Mm. Echo and the Bunnyman, Ocean Rain. (laughs) 
Yeah, I absolutely love this. I still listen to this about once a week and it just, oh God, I love it so much, you know. And I listened to it a lot when I was writing The Amusements, walking on the beach in Tremor, you know. But it brings it like 1984 was a great year for music. I was 14 in 1984 and it was the first band I ever went to see were Echo and the Bunnymen and they played in the SFX about a fortnight, within a fortnight of the Smiths playing there. And I went to both those gigs, you know. But I was quite into the Smiths. My brother was quite into Echo and the Bunnymen, you know. And I've kind of grown off the Smiths. And now I, I prefer the Bunnymen more. But what I remember about that gig really is the two of us getting ready to go to it. And, you know, he would have been 16 and me putting black eyeliner on him <laughs> and back home in his hair with egg whites, you know, and piercing his ear with an ice cube and one of my mother's darning needles. And the two of us going off, you know, with a crucifix in his ear off to see Echo and the Bunnymen in the SFX. Now, the problem with this is that my parents would have been more tolerant of me in school going around looking like this. But my brother was an apprentice plumber. He worked for my father. So he didn't, my father wasn't going to send him off as a plumber <laughs> with eyeliner on. You know, that was not, that was just not going to work at all. But we had great crack. It was such a good gig. September 1984. I still have the ticket stub for it. Yeah. But tell us about the album a little bit more because actually what we'll do is we'll play The Killing Moon and then you can tell us more about the album. And I probably had this entirely wrong. It wouldn't be right to say it was a bit like the 90s thing, Blur Oasis. But I think back in the 80s, it was a little bit, who was going to be the bigger? You 2 or Echo and the Bunnymen? And you 2 sort of went on and Echo and the Bunnymen sort of slipped back a bit. Do you think? I would have bit. thought they were different. I did go and see you 2 in, in the 80s. I would have seen it as a totally different crowd, you know, like we were goths, basically, and you wouldn't have... Um, but you know, Echo and the Bunny Men are still together. They're still touring. What are you going to do with your life? Is a great album that Ian McCulloch released a couple of years ago. They played in the Olympia in November. Um, you know, they're you just it, so COVID. COVID. Yeah, let's not talk about that. Um, but you know, it's such a beautiful album. It's so orchestral. And I think that, you know, they've really influenced when I heard Elbow and the, you know, the orchestration and yeah. that, I just thought that's Echo and the Bunnymen. That's where you got that. You know, they're, they're, I just think they're hugely, hugely influential. And everyone's going on about Kate Bush and running up that hill and Stranger Things. But Nocturnal Me from Ocean Rain was actually in the first series. And Nancy goes into the upside down through the tree and you got the closing credits. Nocturnal, and I was going, when is this series ever going to use Echo and the Bunnymen? And then it just comes up and I was like, this is class. Sitting there with my son going, this is the music you should be listening to now. This, you know. Okay. Well, I'm actually you're going to dig out Ocean Rain and stream it because uh, I don't I say I haven't heard it in 40 years that'll knock your socks off it's fantastic okay favourite bands who do you like artists and bands yeah a bit of a theme here I like North of England bands you know um, obviously you know the Bunnymen are Liverpool the Smiths are Manchester um, but 
I really like I really like pulp. And I really like Richard Hawley and I really like Arctic Monkeys. And there's a whole, you know, these bands are all connected. They're Sheffield and there's kind of, my dad was from Lancashire and I have this real fondness for people singing in their own accents, particularly when it's kind of like my dad's accent. And I just miss him so much all these years later that when I listen to Alex Turner singing or Richard Hawley, I just hear his voice, you know, okay. and there's kind of a north of England, you know, kind of rough around the edges, rockabilly thing to that, that I'm a bit, I'm a real softy, like a real sentimentalist when it comes to that. But there's also, yeah, I, I can just, I see that North of England landscape, those old mining towns, like where my father was from, um, in Lowton in Lancashire, and, you know, all these mills and just how ravaged that landscape was and what was left. I, it's that, they're just the sound of it, particularly Richard Hawley and Alex Turner. Yeah. Okay. But it's an Arctic Monkey song that we actually have from the album. Whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. The track we have. Yeah, but you know, Alex Turner kind of says, Rich, he keeps crediting Richard Hawley with everything. Okay. You know, so I, but I love this because this just makes me want to dance. You know, every time I hear it, I just get up wherever I am and start dancing around badly. When the sun goes down. I said, who's that girl there? I wonder what went wrong so that she had to roam the streets. She doesn't do major credit cards, I doubt she does receipts. It's all not quite legitimate. And what a scummy man Just give him half a chance I bet he'll rob you if he can Can see it in his eyes, yeah That he's got a driving ban Amongst some other offences And I've seen him with girls of the night And he told Roxanne to put on her red light They're all infected but he'll be alright Cos he's a scumbag, don't you know That is a scumbag, don't you? Arctic Monkeys. Getting to the good bit, Matt. <laughs> Sorry, but we want to hear you. Yeah. Well, you know, you see, there's a story in that. You know, he's a storyteller. He's yeah. an amazing lyricist. You know, it's a bit of flash fiction. That's what I love about their songs. Fantastic. And they're brilliant live as well. Mm, yeah. Okay, let's move away from music and let's go to audio. Favourite podcast? You listen yeah. to podcasts a bit, do you? I do. Now, I mostly listen to books and to, I, I, I'm addicted to the New Yorker, um, you know, fiction podcast and so many great Irish short story writers on that. Um, but I do, Wait, do have... Do you like audiobooks and podcasts where people are reading and stuff? I sort of lose concentration mm. and then I miss it and you're trying to wheel back where at least with a book if you sort of get distracted you can go back to where you were more easily. I go back, you know, hit the 30 seconds little okay. thing and go back. Depends on who's reading it. You know, I've just, some books have been butchered by the readings and some are really enhanced. There is a voice artist called Kimberly Farr who does Joan Didion's um, books and does... Um, Liz Stroud's books and she's amazing. She was on Star Trek as an actress. I'd never heard of her but her voice is just incredible. Richard E. Grant is another one. He's done some, I think he did um, The Hearts Invisible Furies or Ladder to the Sky, one of John Boyne's books. Amazing. So it does depend on who's reading it. But you I know, hope you read your own books. Um, no, but you know, anyway, we'll go there. <laughs> but I mean, look, who's going to read Kevin Barry other than Kevin Barry? 
you know, so you go to the New Yorker Fiction Podcast and you listen to him reading The Coast Elytrum or you listen to him, you know, reading Dear Season, I think is the other one. No one else can do that. Anne Enright, the same. You know, they're brilliant readers. And what you realise with that podcast in particular is how incredible... Irish short story writers are like from Frank O'Connor, Maeve Brennan, the whole way of William Trevor. They've just been publishing in the New Yorker since the beginning. I love the ones where you read Column Tobin, you know, reading their own work. Fantastic. So, yeah, I do. I do listen to them. But yeah. you've also nominated, we had Harry McGee from the Irish Times on recently talking about his Gubu podcast mm. and that's gotten into your head as well. It has, yeah. I mean, you know, West Cork really got me on the true crime thing. I mean, Sam Bunge just did such an amazing job, way better than Serial or Teacher's Pet or any of the other, you know, the, the, the original ones people talk about. But Gubu does, um, yeah, it, you know, this is... Malcolm MacArthur and how the government nearly toppled and the merger of um, that nurse and the guy in Eden Terry. Garden. Bridey Garden, yeah. And um, in 1982. Now, I'm really enjoying it because he's, he paints such an accurate picture of what the summer of 1982 was like and how bizarre, yeah, grotesque, unbelievable, unprecedented, bizarre, unbelievable. We're going to get it wrong now, are we? Yeah, you're certainly. Yeah, grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre and unbelievable. And unbelievable. Was what Haw he yeah. called it. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but I love the first three episodes of it. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable yeah. how this happened and how he got away with it and all the people he encountered while he was driving around in stolen cars and going into travel agents looking for glasses of water dressed up in disguises. And because he was so respectable and eccentric, he kind of got away with it. John Banville's fictionalised version, The Book of Evidence, is yeah. also one of his great books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's years now since I've read that, a long, long time ago. So we might as well get to talking about books and the things that influence you. And I think actually you may already have mentioned your favourite author a little bit earlier. Well, it's very hard to pick a favourite author, you know. I mean, it's like trying to pick a favourite child. You're not supposed to have one, you know. Uh, I'm going to say Elizabeth Strout because I just love Olive Kitteridge and I love uh, My Name is Lucy Barton and I love the way she writes. And we've got kind of, like, I, you know, she's a hero of mine when it comes to writing. Um she creates these communities and populates them with people that are just so fascinating and they prop like they keep cropping up she keeps going back to characters all the time so you never let her characters go so olive kitteridge for example is you know this really dislikable school teacher and i love i love that idea that you know your characters don't have to be likable to be engaging you know she's completely dislikable but she has a few redeeming qualities but nobody ever sees her hidden kindnesses you know she's courage when nobody else has it and most of the time you see her she's going around bullying people you know and um i just love that i love that sort of conflict in a character uh there's a the first time i came across it was actually the hbo series this Francis mcdormand played the part yeah and it? bill murray was in it as well and they were so perfectly cast you know um, yeah, it was fantastic. And then I thought, I have to read this woman's books. And then I just read all of them one after another. Um, so, yeah, that's, I would say she is my favourite writer. And, like, you know, even if you look at, there was Olive again then after Olive Kitteridge. And then there was My Name is Lucy Barton. And then she takes Lucy Barton and everyone in Lucy Barton's life and puts them into a book called Anything is Possible. And then there's O. William, which is also Lucy Barton. So I don't have to let go of any of these amazing characters. And her writing seems so simple, you know, that you're kind of going to, that, I hate the, the expression deceptively simple, but it is deceptively simple. And you're wondering, how is she breaking your heart when something so straightforward? Well, we have an audio extract taken from the story River. 
uh, written from the perspective of Jack Kennison, a widow and retired professor. It takes place just after he meets Olive at the beginning of the pair's unlikely relationship. In the early afternoon on a Saturday in June, Jack Kennison put on his sunglasses, got into his sports car with the top down, strapped the seatbelt over his shoulder and across his large stomach, and drove to Portland, almost an hour away, to buy a gallon of whiskey, rather than bump into Olive Kittredge at the grocery store here in Crosby, Maine. Or even that other woman he had seen twice in the store as he stood holding his whiskey while she talked about the weather. The weather. That woman, he could not remember her name, was a widow as well. As he drove, an almost calmness came to him. And once in Portland, he parked and walked down by the water. Summer had opened itself. And while it was still chilly in mid-June, the sky was blue and the gulls were flying above the docks. There were people on the sidewalks. Many were young people with kids or strollers. And they all seemed to be talking to one another. This fact impressed him. How easily they took this for granted. To be with one another. To be talking no one seemed to even glance at him, and he realized what he had known before, only now it came to him differently. He was just an old man with a sloppy belly and not anyone worth noticing. I love that, Matt. That, that's Kimberly Farr reading. And Jack, the character she's talking about, is the one that in the HBO series is played by Bill Murray. I mean, you know, an old man with a sloppy belly. How could you, like, perfectly cast? You know, he really is. He's amazing in it. And, like, yeah, God, the way she writes about loneliness. I just love that. I could listen to it all day. Let's go on to movies. You've done something very unusual. You've nominated a movie as your favourite, one that's currently available yeah. to see in cinemas. I have, yeah. Um, you know, I, I do film reviews, so it's really hard for me to kind of pick again one film. It's like being asked to pick one book. I'm picking on Colleen Kuhn, which uh, is in, still in cinemas now, and it's an Irish language adaptation of Claire Keegan's novella, Foster. Um, its director has been a guest here on the programme. Yeah, it's an, it's, it's such a good adaptation. Like, Foster is one of my favourite books. It's Claire Keegan is an incredible writer. Talk about, I mean, the economy of the prose, not a word, not a, not a comma out of place, unbelievable discipline in her writing. And very rarely does a book that is adapted for film work as well. But to me, this really did. But the fact that it's in the Irish language, I would say people may be turned off because they go, oh, it's an Irish language film. It's nothing to do with the Irish language. Go see it the way that you go see an Italian or a French film you know, as a foreign language film, if you don't speak Irish and you, you know, pick up bits of it. But I didn't realise that um, Andrew Bennett was is, I, a theatre actor I really admire, was an Irish speaker. I knew that Carrie Crowley was. But their performances are extraordinary. Now, I know this book really well. So, so I you know, knew the twists that were coming I knew in the, the twist and I was gutted even though I knew <laughs> I was there in the cinema with tears rolling down my face at the end of it, going, this is so mortifying. But every, there was a rush to the bathroom. <laughs> These people kind of wiping their eyes. It's so moving, but it's beautifully filmed. It's just gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. OK, on Colleen Kuhn. Uh, what about a favourite play or theatre show or musical? You've decided to opt for a theatre company. 
Yeah, I've opted for the Performance Corporation. They're a Kildare-based theatre company and they're just really innovative and original and fun and you never know what you're going to get when you see them. And years ago, I went to see a production they did down in, the, in Cork in the Docklands um, that was called Drive-By. And at the time, everyone was talking about boy racers and all that culture. And the way that you watched this was you were in your car and you tuned in your car radio and the actors were jumping around on car bonnets with like radio mics on them. So it was just really fun. You know, theatre, it's not often you see that kind of performance, that level of agility in theatre. So I saw them like last year then in the uh, Dublin Theatre Festival where it was a VR uh, virtual reality theatre um, piece for an audience of one where you put on an Oculus and you basically were the only person who went into this world and, you know, the... I I can't remember the name of the play now, but basically it was all about conspiracy theorists and the work in opera and all of this. But I'm very excited because they've got a show coming up in September in Belmullet in the public swimming pool there. You know, I know. Who else is doing that? You know, who else is doing this? You just don't know what you're going to get with them. And they did an opera adaptation of The Dead? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I went to see that. I saw it a couple of years ago and then it was one of the first shows when you could go back out last summer when everything opened up again. It was on in the Gaiety for a couple of days. It was the same day as I think which Harlem final was it? There was 20,000 people left into Croke Park. And, and that was a Cork Limerick game. Cork we Limerick won't talk game. about that. Okay, we won't talk about Well, I'll tell you what, people in theatre weren't very happy. 50 people in the Gaiety and 20,000 people I in the I think Croke it was Park. actually 40,000. 40, was it 40,000? 40, I was one of the 40,000, but I said we won't talk about you that. You should have gone to the Gaiety. You'd have a much better time at it. But it was 50 people. So, I mean, the Gaiety is such a beautiful theatre and I don't think I'd ever appreciate it because it's always so packed. And, you know, August isn't the best time to go and see The Dead because, you know, it's set on the epiphany. And I love The Dead so much. It's not really one. It's not. I don't see it as a short story. Like it's, it's the last short story in Joyce's Dubliners, but it's a novella, really. And I really love that story so much that, you know, I'll watch the movie of it. I'll watch a play of it. I'll walk around in early January, walk around Dublin and I'll just listen to, you know, the audio version of it as well. And I, you're over it. But so to go and be able to see it as an opera and reimagined that way so imaginatively was just, yeah, this... Give it to me. Give me more of it. So Belmullet, I'm very excited. There's a champion local accordion player and opera singers and swimmers involved in this. So it's going to be out of this world. Okay, that is, they're called again, they're called the The Performance Performance Corporation. Corporation. Okay, let's move to television. And for your younger television, I suppose this is not a surprise given that you come from the era of Blondie and Echo and the Bunnymen who you were talking Mm -hmm. about earlier. Uh, Dallas is your sort of guilty pleasure from childhood. Yeah, God, I love it. I still love it. I still watch it on YouTube. You see... 1979-1980 you'd look at home produced programs you know if you t- if you lived somewhere that only had the two channels I did I did well there was only one until 1970 late 78-79 late 78 yeah yeah so beachcombers at half five every day the Angelus the news Martin Market the Reardon's I mean, come on. And then Dallas appears and there's sex in it and there's glamorous people and there's whiskey and there's people shooting each other and slapping each other. And it's America and, you know, it's Victoria Principal and Linda Evans and Larry Hagman. So impossibly. Hang on, Linda Evans was dynasty. No, not Linda Evans. What was the... Linda Gray. L- Linda Gray, gorgeous. I should know all these things I, do. I It's great that you do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Linda Gray. Because she's some beautiful woman, wasn't she? She's a stunning looking woman. Um, so, yeah, I just thought it was incredible. And then, of course, when J.R. was shot, 
the big question, who shot JR? We were all wearing I shot JR t-shirts walking around. Now, we weren't allowed to watch it. Myself and my brother, the TV was directly opposite the keyhole in the sitting room. So we'd be sent to bed and the two was there pushing each other out of the way, trying to get down and have a look at it because it wasn't suitable. Well, on November 21st, 1980, apparently 350 million people around the world watched the following scene where Sue Ellen revealed who had shot her husband, J.R. Ewing. Sue Ellen, I brought you things. Regular angel of mercy, aren't you? So supportive. Keeping my secrets, taking me in. What happened? What are you talking about? I have finally figured everything out, that's all. You have been trying to frame me. You're crazy. (laughs) Well, you were right. I was at that condo that night looking for JR. And yes, I did have his gun. But you saw how drunk I was, and you still gave me a drink. Knowing I'd put the gun down to take it. Who's there? You went to the office that night with J.R.'s gun. It was you, Kristen, who shot J.R. Then the next morning while I was showering, (laughs) you hid the gun in the closet. think you've got it all figured out. Get me the police. I wouldn't do that if I were you, JR. Not unless you want your child born in prison. (laughs) Now, wouldn't that be a scandal? Jock Ewing's grandson. Jail baby. Love the music in the oh, background as well. Class, and I'm just trying to remember the actress who played Kristen. She's been Crosby's daughter or granddaughter, wasn't she? She's been a guest on this program as well. Yeah, the name escapes me. Was it Kate? Is it? I can't remember. Yeah, now. but she was she yeah. was a guest here a few years ago. Came yeah. into the studio. Oh, it's just fantastic. And you know, it's a great story. It's got revenge, betrayal, sibling rivalry, all the ingredients you need. You know, a big family saga. So I wouldn't be like I'm not at all snobby, but I just love. And what about modern day television? You see, I didn't have a television for a very long time. So people talk about TV shows that I just, you know, don't know about at all. And I've always been more into radio than I have into TV. But I did find during lockdown, you know, my son that we'd have to, we'd sit down together. And I've always, I love comedy. I love British comedy. It's great American comedy now. So we went through everything from Young Sheldon to Schitt's Creek to all the stuff everyone watched. But then I started going back and finding stuff that everyone talked about that I'd never seen, like Black Books. I was, how have I never seen this? This was made for me. And the other one was Friday Night Dinner, which I absolutely love. It's just so absurd. And, you know, the neighbour Jim showing up with his dog and he's in love with Jackie, the mother. And every time we sit down to dinner over lockdown, we look at each other and say, lovely bit of squirrel and burst out laughing. Then I go down to my mum's and she's like, why do you keep talking about squirrels? <laughs> well, let's hear a little bit. And this is when intrusive neighbour Jim finds himself where he always wanted to be enjoying a slice of crumble with the Goodman family. But the evening spirals out of control when an open tin of red paint becomes involved. It is very exciting. Very. Here we are. I've been looking forward to this for so many years. Well, (laughs) hope you like it. Oh, here, let me just 
Move this out of the way for me. Oh, be careful! You shitting tit! Jesus! So much blood! So much blood! It's paint, Jim! So much paint! Just don't move, Jim! It's not oil paint. Please tell me it's not oil paint. Okay, it's not oil paint. Is it oil paint? Yes, it's oil paint. <laughs> That's it, Jim. Keep going. Keep going. Okay, not far to the shower. Try not to get any more on the walls. Oh, the snow jacket. Oh, the banisters. The banisters. Come on, Jim, come on. Shower's just in here. Oh, here we are. The, the door. The door. Mouse. Mouse. Would you like to help me clean myself? Oh, God. Uh, Angela, I'm told I have to finish, so in a minute, give me your last thing of cultural buried treasure. Anything you'd recommend to anyone that might surprise them? Um, well, Matt, when Facebook started out, I started a page on Facebook called Convert Your Friends to Country because it is my absolute secret passion is country music. And what I used to do is put up posts of country songs and videos to try and convince people because people seem to hate country music and I absolutely love it. I'd usually start with Elvis Costello's Almost Blue album because that's got George Jones on it and, like, you know, Good Year for the Roses, all of that, and try to, because they know that Elvis Costello is cool. But, you know, I was at Body and Soul last week and saw CMAT and I was like, look at all of these people line dancing to I Want to Be a Cowboy Baby. She's done my job, you know. But I grew up listening to it, you know, and I have great fond memories of my dad and like I knew the words to all Kenny Rogers songs by the time I was 10 so it's sort of crazy that we'd be driving around and nine year old me would be roaring you know Ruby don't take your love to town at the top of my voice but it's an amazing song you know it's an anti-war song that still is my favourite country song We have to leave it there Angela Flannery author of The Amusements thank you so much for joining us on The Culture Club and The Last Word of Today FM The Last Word with Matt Cooper Today FM It all happens here.